I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we are reading celebrity memoirs so that you don't have to wreckage through them. If you don't like our takes, if you don't like our spin, hey, see yourself out. But if you're having fun here, I'm happy you're here. And I hope that we can see you live and in person in, well, Toronto sold out. But in Chicago, Minneapolis, Atlanta, Nashville, San Francisco, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. this fall, it's going to be the time of our lives. The tickets are in the show notes, in our link in bio on social media, and on Google. And what about our merch? Oh, my God. In honor of being the ugliest girls in the world, we have brought to you Ugliest Girl in the World Attack merch. I was actually attacked by being the ugliest girl in the world yesterday and to be able to cocoon in my ugliest girl in the world attack hoodie. I don't know if it cured me of my ugliest girl in the worldness, but it offered comfort in my time of need. One of the worst things that's ever happened in my life was I was talking to these two girls I know about an ugliest girl in the world attack. I was like, you know, when you like suddenly look in the mirror and you're like, oh my God, is it me? Am I the ugliest girl in the world? And they were like, no. And like, you've never been like, oh no, I might be the ugliest girl in the world. And they're like, there's so many girls in the world. I'm definitely not the ugliest. We really don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, I, okay, <laughs> so there's a good chance that nobody knows what we're talking about. And these sweatshirts will go unsold. But if you are interested, we did do like a limited run to get them to you as quickly as possible. And they're so cute. Link in bio. We love you guys so much. It's a shorts and a sweatshirt. Our friend Adrian designed them. She is a designer extraordinaire. So that's how you know they're good. And Ashley... Yes, Claire? If you were a celebrity and you wrote a memoir, what would last week's chapter be called? It would be called Changes They Are Coming. We have a week off, a week of no podcast. So also brace yourself. There will be no podcast episode next week, but then we'll be back the week after with some episodes I think you'll be a fonda of. (laughs) There'll be a really interesting page or two. And so I I was like, what am I going to do with my week? And in the midst of my ugliest girl in the world attack, I've always thought about changing my hair color and I'm doing it. I have an appointment. I put down money. So I have to go. I'm really excited and I'm nervous because I've never dyed my hair before. I'm excited for you. I dyed a streak of blue hair once in college and I thought I looked like a rock star, but it was like all the way in the way back underneath all my hair. Like in the dead middle, like the base of the spine? No, like you could see it when I put my hair behind my ears, but it was like really one of those things that should I decide to cover it up remained hidden. I just was so scared about it. I was like, oh my God, dyeing my hair. What if it all falls out? What if it looks crazy? What if my mom says, what are you doing dyeing your hair? What do you think you're some kind of punk? (laughs) Anyway, I will be dyeing my hair red. I'm really excited about it. I've never undergone a change like that in my life. And I hope it doesn't cause an ugliest, ugliest girl in the world attack and instead causes a, hey, she's not so bad attack. Claire, if you were to write a book about your life, what would you call last week's chapter? Uh, We're doing our best. I was sick last week and I really did my best, which was a two out of 10. And we said, fine. I just slept a lot and said, what are you going to do? You're sick. And then today I woke up ready to record this episode. I felt like I'd given myself enough days to get over a cold. I said, Claire, the hump is behind you. Now you must tackle all the things you let by the by side. And you know what I woke up to? Someone had like peed on my house. Oh my God. <laughs> and so the family room and kitchen room kind of really smelled like pee. And I had to go out and kind of like hose it down, but I don't have a hose. So I had to keep just refilling the pitcher and dumping it out on the pee spot until it kind of dissipated. But it, let me tell you, one person can really cause a permeating pee. I like woke up and I was like, what is that smell? I can't believe you're at the part of sickness where your sense of smell has come back, but you like still are a little bit stuffy. And I was hopeful. I was like, maybe I'm smelling my own boogers. <laughs> but then I was like, maybe it's my garbage. So I walked the garbage outside. And that's when I said, oh, this is the subway. It smells like the subway in here. And I know exactly why. And then to try to like get the smell out, I opened the windows. But you know what happened? A really big bug came in and the bug wanted to get out. So I shut all the doors and windows because I was like, well, I don't want bugs in here. I don't want like pee and bugs in my house. What about my bug? Not even really. Um. (laughs) Bug can sit in the backyard. But I was like, okay, so I'm going to shut up all the windows. And then this one bug wanted to get back out so badly and I wanted it out. And so I would go and open the door to try to let it escape and it would fly away. And we just could not communicate. We were not communicating at all. I kept being like, get out, bug. I'm trying to help you. But the bug would run away and then I'd close the door and then he would try to escape again. And I was like, we are not seeing eye to eye. And then I try to cheer myself up with like a real shower. And I love being hairless, but I hate the act of shaving. Somewhere along the lines of getting a long-term boyfriend, I just said, this is too much work. This is work that does not need to be done anymore. 
But today I said, I'm going to shave my armpits. They're so long. And you know what? <laughs> Halfway through each pit, the razor kind of just stopped. So I'm like half shaven, half shaggy <laughs> in a north-south situation. It's like at the hemisphere of my armpit. <laughs> How could it have happened on both sides? I don't know. I guess if I had rinsed out the razor and I didn't have it in me to like figure out angles. I'm not a geometry teacher. I'm not Magellan. I can't sail <laughs> the seas and figure out the ocean. I think Magellan was flat. There was no curvature. That's why they could get from one half of the world to the other. But I couldn't get from the top half of my armpit to the bottom. I don't know, man. I'm doing my best. This is tough stuff. <laughs> you ever seen a girl get taken out by a cold like this? Yes. <laughs> Me last time I had a cold. Yes. I don't like it. I'm barely 100% when I'm 100%. I'm a lot weaker than most people. And nobody like really is nice to me about it. I'm a sleepier girl than most. Should we talk about this week's sleepy girl? Can I tell you the way I related to Casey Rose Wilson on so many levels? I was like, oh, this is my person. And there's hope that I could still be successful despite being like flawed in unfixable ways. Flawed in not evil ways, but unlikable ways and unproductive ways and ways that in America aren't really revered. The Wreckage of My Presence, Essays by Casey Wilson. I actually really like that the photo on the cover is just a loosey-goosey Polaroid. It doesn't feel that there was a cover shoot for this book. This feels like a, the MySpace photo that you've been looking at with your friends for years being like, this is your essence. You know that photo of me on Instagram that's like my essence? Oh my God, yes. I actually was looking at it last night. I what? forgot why I scrolled your Instagram. But then I saw the video. I meant to repost it, the video of us doing the GM diet. And I like <laughs> couldn't fall asleep last night. And I was crying in my bed. And Bug was like, bitch, it is night. Do you guys know what the GM diet it's a diet that General Motors invented in the 80s for their assembly line employees who were gaining weight because they were just sitting for eight hours a day and not eating well. It is horrible and stupid. And we tried to do it once and we made a video about it. I think I made it to the second day <laughs> having only cheated once on the first day. It is a real treat. I'll post it the day this comes out. It was insane. It's the funniest diet in the world. So then I was on your Instagram page and then I saw that photo where you're like, oh no, my essence. <laughs> it is so much scarier than I remember. But anyway, I don't feel like this is a scary photo, but I think that there's not that many ways to do a cover shoot for your book of personal essays. The Lily Collins button up white shirt, legs jeans, no shoes, legs crossed, Katie Couric, like they all do the same thing. So I admire this cover. Yeah, it's funny. It feels very personal. This was my flea bag. I don't know what people liked about flea bag, but it was a woman in all her facets. So she starts with bed person, which is I'm a bed person. And basically, a bed person is someone who wants to recline at all times. When lying down is not an option, we will find a way to remain seated, preferably at an angle. And if we have to stand, you will never not find us in a deep lean. I would recommend to bed people these chairs we have from Sixpenny. Oh, I'm getting them. I'm a bed person. Matt gets mad at me all the time. He's always like, why are you always in bed? He's like a big don't go to bed till you go to sleep. And my question to that is what is the difference between the bed and the couch? I don't know. I just don't understand why we can't always be kind of like lounging. Also, something special about me is, you know, when you're on the subway and somebody's like, hey, do you want my seat? And they'll go, oh, no, I'm just getting off at the next stop anyway. I will go. Yes. You love sitting on the subway. Even if it's for just a moment, that moment is so critical to just take a load off. <laughs> I read the first two pages of this chapter thinking she was saying bad person. I thought that at first. This whole section is about how she loves to lounge, how she loves to sleep in, how she loves to like just be in bed. And I just sat here being like, Casey, that does not make you a bad person. And then I had to restart the chapter <laughs> to understand what she was saying. She then explains that she is from a bed and lounge and luxuriate family. Her mom is a big bed person. She talks about how her parents, they would unfold the fold-out couch and they just started sleeping there. And the den became their bedroom. And that like growing up, her and her friends used to always just hang out in her parents' waterbed all the time like until they were 17. To be parents with a waterbed really threw me for a loop. I think it was a sign of the times. She was born in 1975. And then her dad was a bath person. And this I did find like deeply upsetting. I think that these essays were different for me from like a Seth Rogen essays because they were legitimately funny and they were interesting. I think they were about the self, but like looking at the self through other people. And she actually does come from a family that was like the quirky family that Seth Rogen wishes he came from. They were essays like not even about the self, but about a life. 
about a family and dynamics. And when you read these stories, I kept going, oh my God, that is crazy. Even though I'm sure if you grew up with these people, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's just the Wilsons. But she does write it in a funny way. It felt like the family Little Miss Sunshine is about or something. They're like, like they love each other and everyone means well, but they're a bunch of weirdos. They're a bunch of quirks. So her dad is always taking a bath, even when they have people over. Now is an old man and he owns a hot tub and every morning he gets up and starts his day in the hot tub, which I don't know why, but I find that crazy. I find it so crazy for an adult man to like love a bath so much that he he like buys a big bath for outside (laughs) is how he starts every day. And it's where he invites every guest. I wish I knew someone with a hot tub. She's also an adult thumb sucker, which I was like, that's crazy, Casey. And she says that her therapist has not really delved into it because they think that there's other things to talk about of more importance. Like what? (laughs) I mean, she does talk a lot in this chapter about the distinction between bed people and non-bed people and bath people versus non-bath people. And I'm like, you're right. I am not a bed person or a bath person. I'm a bed person, but I'm not a bath person. I love the ritual of drawing a bath. I love having fun little things to put in the bath. I love to put lavender and candles and I'll even set up a TV show on a chair out of the bath. And the minute I'm in there, I'm like, well, now what are we up to? Yeah, I've taken one bath in the last several years. And the first time I had my own apartment and I didn't have a roommate, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to make this thing squeaky clean and it's going to just be a place where I can take baths. And I did once and then I like bought bath salts and accoutrements for my bath and I never took a bath again and then I got bug and so now my bath isn't my bath anymore. Now it's a place where I also wash a dog, which to like then do a whole cleansing ritual to like get dog stuff out of my bath. I'm just like, I I can't get in there with my body. I don't really know what you do once you're in there. There's just our bath people and there's not bath people and I'm not a bath person. It's not even about the filth to me. Can I say I sucked my thumb until I was five and the thing my dentist always said to my parents was like, don't worry about it. Nobody walks down the aisle sucking their thumb. Everybody stops sucking their thumb eventually. And I guess that's not true. Not for Casey Wilson. Yeah, that seems very not true. There's like this girl on TikTok who has a really interesting teeth shape because she is still sucking her thumb. Well, that was the thing they used to scare me. They said, if you don't stop sucking your thumb, you'll need braces. But unfortunately, when you're five, both braces and glasses are quite cool to have. And so I was like, well, I got to suck this thing harder and guarantee. I was so worried I wouldn't need braces. And it's like every child in America needs braces. She says, what it comes down to is this. I am simply a person of comfort and excess. As my dear friend Kulop says, you refuse to apologize for living a celebratory life. Here, here. And while we're at it, you may have guessed that I also love Ambien, NyQuil, wine, tequila, pina coladas, margaritas, CBD gummies, a rogue pill a friend has left over after surgery, half and half with a splash of coffee, two Splendas and three pumps of peppermint, candy, Cinnabon, Wetzel's pretzels, Annie's pretzels, furry slippers and fuzzy robes, trashy magazines, garbage television, unconfirmed gossip, spas, lasers, luxury, healers of all types, extravagant gifts, surprise parties, choreographed dances with friends at any age, karaoke, musicals, Christmas decorations that include a table tree, naps, joining gyms I'll never go to, hiring trainers I pay for up front and then never go to, starting radical diets I never follow through on. I overspend, I overeat, and I overdo. She is someone with vices, baby. A flawed lady. Aren't we me? (laughs) Aren't we me too? So in the next essay, we get into a lot of her random jobs. Everyone who graduates from an acting conservatory and moves to New York ends up with their fair share of random jobs. And this one zeroes in on a time she worked for a documentarian, in quotes, named Barbara. And Barbara was a rich divorcee. Recently discovered she was a lesbian. A late-in-life lesbian who still worked out of the office of her ex-husband and her ex-husband still funded all of her quote-unquote projects and she was never actually doing anything. And Casey was her assistant and they had this bizarre relationship. It reminded me a lot of my time at the Barbie jewelry company. Barbie rocks, my favorite job of yours. Where we worked out of the attic of my (laughs) boss's (laughs) husband's business. (laughs) And, like, she was this eccentric woman who, like, was always on the cusp of a reality TV show but, like, wouldn't relinquish control because she couldn't understand the way that she was perceived by others. So she could never actually have a TV show because you have to be so confident in the delusion of yourself in order to do reality TV that you have to be like, well, I am great. And so I'll give editing control over to this fella over here. Or I guess you have to want to be famous more than you want to be well-perceived. Which is like a psychotic way to be. So she works for this woman and the woman at one point tells her that she has an eating problem. And she's like, I think I'm okay. You're the one who doesn't eat food and drinks like eight cups of coffee a day and then becomes like quite violent and mean. 
But Barbara says, nope, that's not the case. You need to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And she's like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to take an hour a week to just go do whatever I want to do and tell Barbara I'm at Overeaters Anonymous because she is paying for my time there because she's a quite disordered lunatic. And then she says several times in this chapter that she herself has no problem with her body or her weight. I wasn't hurt by Barbara's words so much as confused. I love food, sure. I just wasn't quite sure I had a problem with food per se beyond loving it so. After all, I had seen this particular problem close up. My mom struggled with her weight, most of the struggle being in her mind, and it was painful to watch. Many a time she'd collapse after coming home from her full-time job as the director of a preschool and wrapping up her second gig as, Kathy, I'll do anything for my daughter Wilson. She would settle in and order two large pizzas, then polish them off with two bags of pepperidge farm mint Milanos and her own liter of the real thing. That's Coca-Cola, not diet. Afterwards, she'd fall into what seemed to be a food coma in the den bedroom. Every month or so, things got darker and she would retreat to her original bedroom for a few days at a time. Then she would be back full steam and raring to go. I was never really sure what was going on, but it didn't seem healthy. That said, however unbothered I was by my own attitude towards food, I pretended to go to the meetings for an entire year I worked with Barbara. Like, she makes up a fake sponsor. She talks about her time in the meetings. She uses the time to go on auditions and stuff. And then eventually, Barbara gets cut off by her ex-husband. And she comes up with this plan that they'll just, like, break into the apartment every day. And then when he gets back from his business trip, they just will refuse to leave. And so they're in there. And whenever anybody knocks on the apartment door, Barbara hides in a coat closet. And the guy says it's FedEx. And Casey looks through the peephole and knows it's not the FedEx guy. He has no package and no outfit. But she opens the door anyway. And of course, they're immediately served with papers. Barbara comes out, starts screaming at her. And then Casey has rage problems. So she starts screaming in her face and says, I called her a creative, succubus, garbagey, talentless fuck. I said the kinds of things you normally kick yourself for not saying after the fact. I would never be like, damn, I wish I had called someone a creative, succubusy, garbagey, talentless fuck. Do I have rage problems? Then she got in her face and said, write me my last check now, you fucking goddamn bitch. Anyway, a year later, Barbara shows up again at her UCB show and is just so proud of her and says, you were so talented. And Casey can tell she wanted to say, you're so talented. That's why I wanted you to lose weight. And she goes into this aside about how weight loss is equated with success in Hollywood. She says, like, Barbara always loved me. She just wanted to protect me because she was afraid of what my life in Hollywood would look like if I wasn't the body norm. So the show that Barbara went to see her at goes to the Aspen Comedy Festival and she gets an agent there and the agent straight up says, you need to lose weight. Not a lot, but enough to look on camera like I look in real life. I did as I was told, which coincidentally coincided with my beginning to get work as an actress. In 2007, I auditioned for Julia and Julia in the morning and for Saturday Night Live in the afternoon. I got both jobs. A miracle. But if I'm being honest, I'm not sure I would have gotten them if I hadn't lost the weight. I'd like to think so. There's a dark adage that floats around SNL. You either have to lose the weight or gain it to be on the show, but you can't be in between. And I think that that's all of Hollywood. She talks a little bit about how she feels that this is a thing of the past. So she goes into the fact that nowadays there are a lot more people embracing their size. And I guess I just wish that it was true. I don't know. I guess I don't want to say it's better. I don't want to naively be like, things are getting better. But then she talks about when she got fired from SNL after two seasons. On the CNN ticker, it said that she was fired for being fat. And the Hollywood Reporter ran an article saying that she was fired for being too fat. She got hired on SNL right after her mom died. And she said she got there, had unhealthy eating habits and stuff. And so she gained a lot of weight. But I don't know. Do you think in today's day and age, CNN would run a ticker that said Casey Wilson fired for being fat? So, no. I do think it's gotten better in that we are not publicly and aggressively body shaming people. But I guess I wish that it was true that the things we're saying now were actually true. I think we talk differently and I don't think that ideologies have changed. But I hope that in talking differently, slowly it'll like catch up in action. No, I don't think it's as good as like the older generation would like to pretend for the younger generation. But I do think it is a bit better. I do think there is an awareness. People still say crazy shit, but now there's backlash to that shit, which is good. When people shame you for your size, they succeed in reducing you to the smallest version of yourself, emotionally. And I collapsed under the scrutiny and made a decision. I realized if I wanted to do what I loved, perform and make people laugh, I needed to lose some weight. So I did, but not for them, for me, to protect myself. I chose to become a less visible target in order to shine. I don't really know what that means. And that's something I read and I was like, oh, so you lost weight to conform to the societal expectation, not for them, for you. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's always so that they treat you better because your life would be easier. I don't really understand what she thinks she's saying here. Me either. I guess I do think that, spoiler alert, she at the end of this book talks about genuinely going to Overeaters Anonymous. And there's a lot about weight and body image throughout this book that feels not confronted. There just feels like there's a lie here. I don't know. She's always talking about wanting to lose weight and being addicted to eating sugar and stuff. But always being like, oh, but I don't really care about my weight. Yeah. And I'm just like, something here isn't adding up. Then why did you take diet pills after you had your sons? (laughs) Like, it just feels like something that is not quite unpacked in any way in her own mind. There's still like eight different categories of it that she hasn't linked together as one conversation. Yeah, that's what it is. She gives Barbara credit. She says she knew what I didn't yet know, which is that the world is cruel to overweight people. And it makes me jealous if that is the truth. Like if she genuinely sat there and said, I've never had a problem with my body image because I didn't know that people's perception of you is altered by what you look like. I've had body image issues and I feel like to sit here and say that like I just didn't know that people care. If you're telling the truth, I'm jealous of you, but I don't think you're telling the truth because we all live in the same world. I guess the inherent lie here is I decided to lose weight, so I did, but not for them, for me. What you're saying is that you're okay with your weight. So when you say you lost weight, you didn't do it for yourself. You didn't do it because you're like, I would just feel better in my own body if I weighed a little less or ate a little healthier or worked out more. You're not like, I wanted to feel stronger, so I lost weight for me. You specifically lost weight so that you could fit into the industry and have a better time getting hired. Yeah. If she had said, listen, I agreed to lose weight, not because I had any problem with how I looked with 10 pounds on me, but because I just said, this is not the fight I want to fight, which is what Tina Fey says. Exactly. And I've heard other people say that, like, at the end of the day, I can try and get a role. I can't go and try and change an industry. I just don't have it in me. From the standpoint of early in your career, when you don't have any ground to stand on, to dig your heels in about anything takes a lot of effort. And also, more than effort, a lot of risk that you might just not succeed anyway. Yeah. Here's the thing. Hair thinning will happen in approximately one in two women. So if you are among them, you are not alone. Thinning is completely normal and Nutrafol helps women address it from within with science-backed supplements. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve visible thickness and strength. From postpartum to menopause and no matter your life stage, Nutrafol has four unique formulas to support women. Each is physician formulated using drug-free, science-backed ingredients so you get the most reliable results. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. In a clinical study, 86% of women improved their hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplements for six months. I never really realized how much my hair was thinning until I started living alone and I realized that every hair in the drain is my fault. I personally love my hair. I would love to hang on to it. I would love to see it thicker. I would love to see it healthier. Having my hair feel soft and healthy makes me feel so much happier. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com promo code WORM. So then she talks about all the guys she's dated. And she says she mostly dated really nice, like skinny, dorky, sweet, sensitive guys. Mostly guys named Paul. They all weighed 160 pounds soaking wet. And she's like, maybe that's why we had no problem because I was always like bigger than them and had more power over them. I could always like beat them up if I needed to. She tells two pretty insane hookup stories. One's about hooking up with a guy on spring break who they didn't even really hook up. He just like fucked a mattress in front of her. She says he like just got on her bed and she was like at the window and he just took off his pants and underwear and his pubes covered his whole dick and they were like matted and disgusting and musty. And then he just started thrusting even though she was nowhere near him to completion. This was a psychotic story and I understand why you would want to put it in a book for posterity. And she's like, he made a sound I've yet to hear since. She's like, do you know how rare it is to hear a new sound? (laughs) So that was crazy. And then the second story is about when she's in her early 20s living in New York. She meets a businessman who wears a suit and thinks they're going to get married. And then after four months of dating, he says, I want things to be casual. And she has like a breakdown, starts crying. 
and then like has sex with him. And then at this point when she's desperately having sex with him to try to like get him to not be casual, he asks if they can do anal. And she's like, of course not, you evil, disgusting monster. But in actuality, she says yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then she goes, I turn to look at this titan of industry. I want to stare straight into his eyes and say with conviction, in the darkness of that tiny room, I speak. Nay, I roar. Yes, I say. Yes, you may. And then she gets into a little cool girl diatribe. She says that she is not cool. She babbles at parties. She doesn't really know what to say to people. She meets a lot of people who are overly cool. And she talks about meeting a cool girl where she just like embarrasses herself because this girl has the power of not caring. And Casey has the unpower of caring too much. And she says this girl says one of the douchiest things I've ever heard. She says that she gets really anxious at parties and has a lot of social anxiety. And she's like, oh, why? And she goes, because 99% of the people who talk make me feel embarrassed. Everything people say makes me cringe. If you are somebody who's so fucking cool that you can't even bear to listen to other people, then stay the fuck home. Fuck you. That's a you problem. You're well, a loser. that's what I was going to say to this is reading this chapter, I was like, this is something that I want to like scream in Casey Wilson's face. I was like, there is no such thing as cool people and uncool people. There are wretched cunts you meet at parties who make you feel bad about yourself. You often do have perfect bangs, but that's not really something that can get you to heaven. But that doesn't make them cool. Like, it's not cool to be an asshole to people. It's actually cool to be kind. <laughs> As my dad used to say to me, it's nice to be important, but it's important to be nice. (laughs) (laughs) And then she talks about Louis Anderson coming and sitting down next to her when she has no one to talk to at the party. And they just have a really lovely and quick exchange where they each proclaim themselves fans of the other one. And then they have a nice little sharing moment about both of their mothers who have passed. And then he gets up and walks away. And do you know what? That is the coolest person at a party. The one who makes you feel like you're not a fucking loser. He like is such a fan of her and happy endings. And then he goes, is your mom still with us? No, I said, I'm so sorry. And then he asked me something I realized no one ever asks. What was her name? Kathy, I said. He looked up at the sky and with a quiver in his voice, he said, love you, Kathy. And then he got up off the sofa and walked away. What a cool guy. And here's the thing about coolness at parties. I genuinely do think that if someone makes you feel bad about yourself for something you say or oversharing or being too excitable or something like that, it's like hard to do because I have had a lot of party anxiety and regret and being like, did I make an ass of myself? Like, did I seem like a weirdo? And it does take time. But if someone makes you feel like you said something uncool or uninteresting or whatever, like that is a miserable person. You guys were both invited to the same thing. I always feel it's like an immediate power switch when you're like being nervous and talking and trying to connect to somebody and like unsure of how it's going over. And then they say something to specifically make you feel embarrassed or put down and immediately go, oh, you're a fucking loser. If you need to take this power on me, if like you see me trying to be a human being and be vulnerable and connect to you, which is a very normal thing because we're in a conversation. Sorry, I'm like trying hard to participate in this conversation for your benefit. And you're going to try to turn it on me. I actually immediately go, oh, there's something wrong with you. Like, it's very uncool to turn people down that way. This next chapter, I don't even want to talk about. So what happened is they did have these two like menace labs that ripped up everything. Finally, one of them they had to give to a friend and the other one, Saber, was always running away. And the whole town had to get involved. And apparently her parents were like pretty blasé. And like neighbors would have to go after the dogs with like steaks and they would just see them taken off down the street. One time they got a call from the hotel and they're like, hey, I think your dogs are here. They're doing like jumps off the diving board. Everybody loves them, but she got to come get them. So these dogs were always running away. They would try to make the fence taller. And then the dog just ended up crawling under the fence. One day, the dog runs away and just never comes back. Three years later, out of nowhere, the dog shows up again, wearing the same bandana, looks just the same, a little bit older, but it's a miracle. Everyone in town is so blown away that they're on the cover of the local newspaper. And for a month, no one can believe the way that Saber came back because the whole town was invested in Saber. And out of nowhere, Saber returned home because he missed his old pals. So Saber comes back and then a month later, missing dog signs start popping up for this dog, Moonshine. And people are like calling their parents and being like, listen, I'm a God-fearing woman. And this man said, have you seen a black lab with a red bandana? And I looked him in the eyes and I said, no, I have not. (laughs) But everybody was like, I have a bad feeling that our little miracle returned is bullshit. And they had to give the dog back. And it was humiliating. That is humiliating, but I just don't think it's funny for a dog to be running away this often. It's not an anecdote to me. It is a lifelong tragedy. If Bug ran away and I lost her for like seven minutes, I don't know that I would survive the seven minutes. But can I say something? If she was constantly running away at some point, wouldn't you go, well, maybe she doesn't want to be with you? I guess if Bug was running away, it would break my heart. And I'm so grateful to know that she is the clingiest bitch on earth. (laughs) 
like if she wanted to roam, would you let her roam? No, because New York is pretty dangerous roads. But you know she doesn't want to roam. When I go into a coffee shop to get a coffee and leave Bug outside with Claire, Bug has like a meltdown. Bug is not a strong person. (laughs) She and I get our constitution from each other. So then this next chapter is about her love of housewives. She discovered housewives when she was in like a grief coma after her mom passed away. Her mom died suddenly. She had a heart attack and just died at the age of 56, which is very rare for women to have like a random heart attack like that that is fatal. And so she goes back to L.A. and just makes a bed in the closet in the living room with a mattress she found on the ground outside in L.A., which I was like, Casey. That's disgusting. That's too depressed, dude. (laughs) Like You had a mattress in your apartment already. Why not pull that one over? But she just watches TV for like months and she happens to watch the premiere of episode one, season one of The Real Housewives of Orange County, the OG Real Housewives, and she falls in love. And then she just talks about, she started a podcast called Bitch Sash with her friend Danielle Schneider, who also loved Real Housewives. They had a friendship. They were going to do like a limited dish thing. But she says like in addition to talk about Real Housewives, they talk about themselves and their troubles and their trialations. It's a little love letter to the Real Housewives franchise and what she loves about it. I don't feel so bad laughing when women dressed in flappers costumes argue full-throatedly about who ate the icing off a birthday cake before it had been served. And it really helps her kind of like find herself again. I think this book has a lot of really great essays on grief. Yeah, I mean, this book is about losing her mother. Yes, and I think the way that there isn't actually a chapter about the loss of her mother instead in almost every single chapter She weaves in the way grief played a role in her life through this chapter of her life is very interesting because it really is like an ever-evolving process. I think the greatest success of her life so far professionally has probably been Bitch Sesh. I know she's been in the happy endings, but I feel like she probably has gotten the most success financially and like critically from Bitch Sesh. The way that her love for housewives came out of her grief and then out of her love for housewives came this like passion project that's been so successful. She has a very, not anti-hero, but as I keep saying, like she is flawed. The things that are supposed to be things you're ashamed of or not like about yourselves end up being her strengths. Like her weaknesses are her strengths. Yeah. None of it's linear. And she takes things that are viewed as weaknesses or viewed as less desirable qualities. It is about the fact that she has, with her whole chest, declared this a passion, and that is good and okay. Yeah, and that's what people like about the podcast is that they take it so seriously. She's like, no, you don't understand. We have to dissect every word. Yeah. I don't just watch. I'm obsessed. (laughs) She gets into her anger issues in this next chapter. She has broken many a phone to violent anger. That's like kind of one of her go-to outlets is to just chuck her phone across the room when she's very angry. She broke a phone at SNL. I mean, she's broken like so many phones. Yeah, that is insane. She says she like threw her phone into her mirror at SNL in the green room. And I was like, I didn't know women were allowed to break stuff backstage out of fury. I guess they're not. She got fired. Yeah. The problem is I wasn't exactly sure what I was so angry about. I have deep regret over the few times I've turned my acid tongue on my prized girlfriends. I think it was because I always felt like they could handle it but they shouldn't have had to. My ability to maintain close connections with women from all the chapters of my life is something I'm proudest of, but nothing will threaten a friendship like screaming at a girlfriend, your husband is a little bitch at Buca de Beppo in Studio City. That is an intense thing to scream at someone at Buca de Beppo in Studio City. How could things take such a turn? Of course she loves the housewives. She's like, finally, (laughs) people who talk like I talk. (laughs) And then she says, growing up, her mom had big feelings My mom once tried to throw a dining room chair at my dad's head and I barely looked up from Mr. Popper's penguins. My dad was arrested for screaming at a maitre d' who wouldn't seat an elderly woman. Later, the woman told my father that while she was grateful he had stuck up for her, a stranger, the reason she was standing by the door is that she was waiting for someone. The upside to this is that as he was being dragged out of the restaurant in handcuffs, he had the presence of mind to yell to the patrons seated on the patio, appetize me, meaning throw their appetizers at him to see if he could catch it in their mouth. I mean, that's very funny. Her dad is very funny. Scream appetize me. (laughs) And the fact that people knew. I'm sure that there was like a mouth motion that went with it. If I said appetize me and went, ah. Right. But I think that if I was eating at the patio of a restaurant and like a man being forced out said appetize me and opened his mouth, I don't know that I'd be fast enough with my hand and my thoughts. Not you, but that's why it takes all kinds, Ashley. (laughs) You may be quick with the word, but you're not quick with a popper. So she realizes that her anger is a funnel for sadness. 
The sadness of publicly failing in my dream job. The sadness of cheating on a loving college boyfriend because I didn't know how to extricate myself. The sadness of my mom dying so young. The sadness of how far we haven't come. And while I'm no less angry, knowing that it's not the end of the story makes me less reactive. Anger demands you do something and sadness requires you be. And that is very interesting. I never really thought of that. Like to be sad, you have to just decide to exist in a moment. But when you're angry, you can like scream at someone. Or throw a phone. Or throw a phone. I mean, listen, I understand that one's healthier. But if you were like, Claire, you could sit in your sadness or you could throw a fucking phone. I'd be like, I'll throw a phone, please. Yeah. And she talks about working on her anger and how when she looks at her mom and then herself and then her children, progress is being made. She is obsessed with self-help. She calls herself a seeker. If you go up to her and say, I know a woman and that woman was you with a different name and a mustache, <laughs> she would pay you $5,000 to like look into her eyes and tell her something about herself. She will pay a lot of people for retreats, for breathing exercises, to have her kitchen cleansed of bad energy around Tupperware. I mean, it is something that I think I would be hugely at risk of if I had a lot of money. Can I tell you? She's like, I will say my one astrologist has predicted a lot of things specifically, and she is really good. And I was like, okay, I would see that astrologist next time I'm in LA. And then she has a psychic whose brain has been scanned by scientists. So I'm like, well, I would see her too. But she also hires the scullery whisperer who comes in and she hires her to help learn how to cook because she has these kids. And she's like, my grandmother was a great cook. My mom only ever made tacos, but now I know nothing about cooking. And so she brings this woman in to teach her how to like make some chicken, you know, but the woman will not. Instead, the woman keeps talking about like the energy of the kitchen, how she has to throw everything out and she should probably redo her kitchen. And then she says, you're three meetings away from really knowing how to feed your family and you have to come to my house. And she just has her come over and walk around the garden barefoot and ground herself with the trees and stare out the window. <laughs> And she talks about how much money she has given these random people who just like adjust the energy of spaces. And she admits, she's like, I know it's not likable. I know it's an insane thing to do. I'm laughing at me, not with me. She says, my obsessive self-help phase coincided with the period after my mom died. These dark, lonely years found me suddenly with a real income, but zero stability. My erratic, high-low confidence wasn't serving me in either direction. And I felt a general sense of unrest, unease. And that does make sense. She just goes through all of the crazy people she meets at all these crazy retreats. She does a lot of weekend-long women's learning where you dance sensually with a stranger until you open up sexually, and then you take ayahuasca, and then you speak to yourself. And believe it or not, she meets some real crazies there. <laughs> but she also learns some real lessons. She says, it's wonderful I'm so open, and I take on anything and everything, but she wanted me to view new friendships and opportunities in the cool light of day. It's stuck with me ever since. Not everything has to be a yes. I mean, that's a good thing to learn. And it finally concludes, not concludes, I'm sure she's seeing healers to this day, but she has this horrible experience and then she's like, all right, no more healers for a few weeks. And she finally goes and she does ayahuasca light in Van Nuys in someone's backyard. And so she takes it and she says, my worst fear had come true. I'm still alone. Ask me for a message. I suddenly heard myself say to myself, it was me, but also not me. Ask me anything you want to know and I will answer. A question appeared. The question I had been asking in some form or another all of my journeys. Is my mom okay? I answered myself immediately, but it was, again, not me answering. I'm happy. The living think the dead are suffering. We are happy. It's all you who are suffering, not us. We're okay. And then she goes to talk to her friend who's also in this ayahuasca circle who has also lost both her parents. And she has also just heard a message that her parents are okay. And so Casey's like, it must be true. I'm healed. A miracle indeed. For some reason, a reason completely unknown to me, Detergent comes in these giant plastic jugs that especially when you are lugging them to a laundry mat, it is so inconvenient. It is almost impossible to carry a giant plastic jug and a giant thing of laundry, especially if you're a procrastinator like me and you have a lot of laundry. They are inconvenient, they are heavy, and they just end up in landfills and oceans harming our planet and marine life. There has to be a better way and there is. Earth Breeze. EarthBreeze laundry detergent eco sheets look like dryer sheets, but they are not. It's a revolutionary liquidless detergent that dissolves 100% in any wash cycle, hot or cold. You don't have to measure, you don't have to spill everywhere, and you don't have to lug around a giant jug. Just toss the sheet in. EarthBreeze has made the whole concept of detergent better. The packaging is lightweight, biodegradable, and plastic free. It's great for all laundry lifestyles, even sensitive skin. Their eco sheets are hypoallergenic and dermatologist tested. Earth Breeze is compatible with high efficiency washers, gray water systems, and it's septic safe. 
EarthBreeze offers flexible subscriptions that can be adjusted, paused, or canceled at any time, and it's delivered right to your door via free carbon-neutral shipping at a frequency that you can set based on your lifestyle, and you still get a powerful clean. EarthBreeze is tough on stains, fights, odors, and your clothes come out clean every time. It is the Favorite addition I've ever had to Clean Sheet Sunday, an EarthBreeze Clean Sheet. Oh, baby, that is a sheet worth Sunday celebration. Switch from the old-fashioned goo to something new. Right now, our listeners can subscribe to EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash worm to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash worm for 40% off earthbreeze.com slash worm. She comes from a hiking family. It was because when she was growing up, her family didn't have a ton of money but loved to do family vacations. So it was a lot of camping. And they were eccentric campers. Her mom, it seems like she just would show up and leave. Her mom hated camping. But the main story is that one year, they went on this huge camping trip all the way out in California. They were from outside of D.C. She grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. And so they flew all the way to Sierra Nevada to meet these old friends of her parents. And right away, her parents are like, Jack's different. And so they take this eight-hour trek. It's a five-hour horseback ride. Up to the top of a mountain that they have to do with rangers because the train is so difficult. They go all the way up there. And right away, Jack is a huge dick and starts drinking. And nobody knows what to do. And then as they all go to sleep, he starts just berating his wife. And Casey's like the whole time, like, I loved it. Because for the first time in my life, my parents were the normal ones. And normally I'm always on edge because my parents are doing fucking weird things. And finally I was like, hell yeah, your parents are doing weird things. So her dad goes to talk to them. Jack ends up storming off. Storming off where? Who knows? They just spend the next two weeks without him. And when they leave the mountain, they pass him in a car. And the wife, Lori, is like, I'm going to get a divorce. And he's like, okay. And she's like, I can't believe that our camping broke them. And then years later, their vacations start to get a little fancier. Her dad gets better and better jobs and they become a scuba diving family. They get really into scuba diving together. And she goes scuba diving with her dad and her new boyfriend. This is after her mom has passed away. Her dad is now dating Lori, the mom from the horse trip. That Casey does not seem very happy about. Yeah, I mean... In the previous section of this chapter, she calls Lori absolutely sparkless. She says Lori is just like human paper. Anyway, Lori was short-lived and it feels as though it was not a great situation for the group. But she goes on a trip with her dad, Lori, and her boyfriend at the time, who was actually Paul Rust, I believe, from my research. Interesting. I don't know who that is. Well, if you look up a photo of him, you'll say, oh, yeah, that's a guy who couldn't handle scuba diving. She talks about how he could not handle scuba diving. Honestly, seems pretty embarrassing. He came out of the water with claw hands having a panic attack. So they calm him down. He apologizes. They apologize. They go out to dinner and then they find a carnival and they get on the Ferris wheel. And then at the top of the Ferris wheel, he has another panic attack. And Casey's dad looks up and he goes, is he clawing again? Which I think is so funny. They're all so fucking annoyed with him. Something about being like, is he doing those claws again? And then years later, we cut to another scuba trip. And this is the final scuba trip that they take as a family. And it is like a very interestingly written journey through family trips to post-grief family trips to sort of a conclusion and like the entrance of a new cycle of life. The year after their final scuba trip, all three of them get engaged in the same year. And she's like, and now we all, we don't do big Wilson family vacations anymore. We all have our individual families. But I like to think of us, Fletcher and my dad and me, weightless, floating underwater, no abyss in sight, marveling at all we see ahead, separate but together. It's very beautiful. Okay, this is one of the weirder chapters that I almost think she must have cut in half because she couldn't put it in there because it was too mean. But she tells a story about when her and all of her successful friends go to a barbecue at this guy they went to college's house with. It's clear that they all went to acting school together. Everyone else went on to be successful. He didn't, but he was the richest one. And he was always begging them to get dinner at his house. And they were always denying it. And then finally, he sent an email saying literally any day in March. And so they had to go. And when they got there, the house was like all boxes. And the wife opened the door and they were like, is this a bad time? And she's like, well, we're moving. And they're like, oh, okay, should we go? And she goes, well, we've got no food but Tylenol. And they're like, okay. And then the guy shows up. He's like, no, no, come hang out in the backyard. She'll go get food. And then she shows up and is like, I couldn't find the credit card. And Casey Wilson's like, what do you mean the credit card? <laughs> like, why do you guys only have one credit card betwixt you? And then he's like, well, keep looking. And she's like, I'm getting the other one. And he's like, no, keep looking. And then she walks across the backyard into the freezer area and pulls out a block of ice and like hammers away at this block of ice until she gets the credit card. 
And then the chapter ends, but I'm like, whoa, that is a crazy thing to have happen at a party you're invited to. I had to take a break. I was like, tell me more about these people. What is happening? What went on with them? And I'm like, and do they know you wrote about them? Like, where are they now? They must be divorced. I would have to be divorced just because I'd be so humiliated. I would change my name. This was crazy. I don't know what the point of this chapter was, but it really was like a story that she was just like, I have to get it out there. You cannot believe what I lived through. The next chapter is about a time she went to like a terrible show at a black box theater, but there was a guy outside doing a really funny mime performance. This chapter did make me laugh. So if you ever pick up this book, I really like that one, but there's nothing I can like relate to you. And then she gets into the part about happy endings, which you and I are both equal but opposite fans of Casey Wilson. We came to her in our own ways. I am a diehard stan of the show Happy Endings. And it's so funny that she knows. She goes, not a lot of people watched it, but the people who did are obsessed. I mean, me and my brother, let me know if you actually get my brother on the Patreon this week and we'll just say Happy Endings quotes at each other. He made his fiance watch the show because she like wouldn't get him otherwise. He is expecting a baby girl and has floated a couple Happy Endings inspired names. And I do not know how much he's kidding. Not. He's not kidding. I don't think he is at all. I think the greatest joke of your brother's life is that he's not kidding. (laughs) I love this show so much. And so I know I'm a hypocrite because normally these chapters where someone just gushes about a cult classic project they were a part of and says everyone I worked with was awesome and nice and I loved it and we all had the best time and I'm so grateful to be a part of the project. Normally these chapters make my stomach churn, but because I love everything she's saying, I am a dumb hypocrite bitch from hell. And she also met her husband through the show. Part of what made this chapter funny is she doesn't describe scenes from the show. She does like once or twice, but mostly she tells funny stories between her and the cast and they actually are funny. Yeah. Like her and Adam Pally are best friends and she says all the mean things they say to each other. I guess she's obsessed with thinking that Lauren Michaels really liked her. (laughs) And he goes, you wouldn't be fired if he liked you. He goes, he hates you. You didn't deliver. He wouldn't have fired you if he liked you. And I told Adam just as meaningfully about a week into filming that if he would just lose weight, he could be Matt Damon. But unfortunately, it didn't look like it was headed in that direction. I just realized we did two SNL books in a row, but this is such a not SNL book that it didn't even occur well, to me. Well, it's so funny. I think we left it out of the Colin Jost thing. We talked about it amongst ourselves, but Colin Jost in his book is like, it's not competitive at SNL. It's really chill. And I know for a fact that's not fucking true. I know for so many facts it's not fucking true. We were talking to someone who quit SNL in the middle of the season because he described it as there were no highs. There were just brief moments where you weren't actively drowning. But it's so funny because obviously Colin has spent many years there longer than Casey, but he also has not done anything else in his life that is important to him. Like the way nothing else matters in his life besides doing SNL and the way it's such a footnote in Casey's book is very interesting. So she talks about happy endings. I like to hear about it. This is some real just like if you like the show meet. So she talks about getting with the creator of the show she's on. They got together, she and her husband, between the first and second seasons. She talks about being anxious to break it to the cast because I do think that that would be a very stressful thing to be an actor on a show and to have to tell a close-knit group of people who work together every day, by the way, I'm boinking our boss. And Adam goes, no one cares. We don't work at the UN. That's very funny to me. And then she gets into a chapter about how much she loves her husband. Her sister-in-law says you should always maintain a little bit of mystique and a little bit of power, even in the marriage. Don't call him back. Don't answer all his texts, but she can't. She relatably calls him all the time. And sometimes she has to call him and pretend it's an emergency. But then she's like, the emergency is that something really funny happened. And he's like, well, what? And she's like, um, no, 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 no. I'm calling because of something important. And she'll like pick a fight with him to keep him on the phone longer. She just loves chatting to him. It is nauseating. This is also very funny. Her sister-in-law's other advice is that you should have good books that you keep close by. So when your kids come in to ask you questions, You can act like you were reading because it sets a good example if they think that every time they come to you, you were reading. She also says drop your children off in workout clothes and say you're about to go to a workout and they don't have to know if you are or not. They just assume you live a healthy lifestyle. I have to say, I don't know if the mystique stuff is good advice, but I don't see what's wrong here. She says that if she and her husband ever break up, it will not be amicable. She loves him too much and there's no way that that will ever happen. If he dies first, she will end it all. And if she dies first, he's not allowed to remarry. I do think that reading stuff like this, I just, I have no faith in any Hollywood couple. I know that they're not both like publicly facing Hollywood people and she's not a mega celebrity in any way. Like obviously there is hope that their very real love for each other could last forever, but I just don't have faith in humanity. And so if their relationship does end, it will fuck with me, I think. After reading a chapter like this, the idea that they could get divorced, it stressed me out. 
Spring is a time of growth and transformation, and Dipsy is help you to explore the sensual side to grow into your sexiest self. With Dipsy's sexy audio stories, you can indulge in your blooming desires, newfound passions, and the thrill of taking risks. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, hot and heavy hookups, and more. There is new content released every week so you can listen to your favorite stories again and again or find something brand new to explore. And you can dive into sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories you can read. I personally do not hate a story that you can read, but diving into the stories that Dipsy creates that you can listen to, there are such sexy voices in my ear telling me basically everything I wanted to know. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm, dipsystories.com slash worm. So the next chapter is about coordinating her grandpa's funeral. She says producing, producing her grandpa's funeral and producing her mom's funeral. And the joke with her grandpa's funeral is that she gave herself all the songs to sing. So she will be performing all the songs. And then some stranger shows up and is like, well, you know, I was good friends with your grandpa and I would like to close it out. And she's like, okay, well, if you say he would like to hear you sing. And she says she would go visit her grandpa every once in a while and sing for his retirement home. She was like, they must think I'm something, huh? And he's like, Not really, sugar. Melvin's granddaughter is playing Maria in The Sound of Music on Broadway right now, and she often flies here on Monday mornings between shows. She's really something. Damn, that is a good one, though. That is a good one. That's who you want singing at your retirement home. She talks about also producing her mom's funeral and how it was three hours long almost because there was so many people speaking, so many songs, so many things, and Casey was anxious about how long the funeral was. And her dad was like, relax, this is for us. Like, if we turn around and everyone got bored and left, that's fine. But... Then he does something. This is where I'm like, no, your family is wacky. (laughs) So her dad is a professional political advertisement creator. So he shot the whole thing with three cameras and then later had her redo her eulogy in ADR, which is what they do after the fact for movies when some lines aren't picked up correctly by the microphone. He was like in there directing her in a sound booth over Christmas being like, no, use more emotion. You were more emotional that day. But then he said for years, he edited it down and he would take it all around the country and anyone who wasn't able to attend the funeral, he would show them all the highlights with photos and stuff. So that is very sweet. He also, in his grief, got a perm. He saw a $20 bill on the ground and looked at Andrew Jackson and took that $20 bill into the hair salon and said, Jackson me. She said he also then paid over $1,000 for a seven-foot portrait of himself, which he gave to me and my husband because since mom died, everyone only has photos of her around. But the real like beautiful moment is that the last phone conversation Casey ever had with her mom is before she ever got SNL, before she had really gotten anything, she had an audition for a Christopher Guest movie to be like a small role in it. And her and her mom were so excited because that was their favorite director and they couldn't believe that she was even going to get to audition for it. And her mom's like, I'm sure you're going to get it. And then her mom died that night of a heart attack. And she missed the audition, of course, because she had to go to the funeral and grief. And then a year later, she got a call and the movie had one last role that they wanted to film after the fact. And did she want to do it? And she went in and thought she bombed. And then she ended up getting it. And she felt like it was such a beautiful way to end things because she's like, my mom died thinking I was going to go get this role. And then she did go get the role. Yeah, I think it is a really beautiful full circle moment. And then it turns out, of course, that the guy at her grandpa's funeral did not know her grandpa at all. An elderly stranger who would rap a song offbeat about Jesus over a cassette tape of children's backup vocals that stopped mid-performance because the ribbon had snarled from overuse. That did not stop him from finishing a cappella, though. He was our closer. We all sat there horrified. It is my great hope that I don't have to produce any more funerals for a long, long while. She opens up a lot about postpartum depression in this book, which I think is something very important. And she says every part of motherhood ever has thrown her for a loop. Anything goes wrong is my fault and anything that goes right is in spite of me. I examine my every moment with him for flaws. It always feels like I'm hovering out my body, watching and judging my performance. Initially, I think this is because of a moment of parenting we're in now in which women are meant to feel grateful that feminism has granted us the opportunity to work full time and be simultaneously ferociously devoted to our children in a way generations of parents before us have never been. And one of the things that contributes to her constant anxiety and unassuredness is that there is something wrong with her oldest son and they can't figure out what it is. 
People have suggested a number of things. They've taken him to get every kind of test that they can think of. Every time they get a test, someone points out another thing that could be a problem, but then isn't diagnostically a problem. She describes the symptoms as he seems depressed at two years old. Melancholy. I often find him lying on the ground when I enter a room, gazing at the ceiling with such a sense of longing it makes my heart physically hurt. His teacher reports that while other kids are often playing, he lies on the couch and just watches, looking as though he hasn't slept in days. He sleeps 14 hours a day, sometimes 16. He has tantrums that seem intense and unending even for a two-year-old. Playdates are tense because I'm desperate for him to connect and play and have fun with other kids. And then they find out he can't jump. He has these days where all of a sudden he'll just light up and he's curious and he's excited. She says one time in a car, she asked him what he wants to be when he grows up and he replies, a stranger. A stranger who sits alone in a movie theater eating popcorn and no one talks to them. <laughs> That's a crazy thing for a two-year-old. What do you mean when you grow up you want to be a stranger? She has a couple things that her kids say where I'm like, you did a good job of literally just throwing in here a quick one-liner that genuinely is funny and not boring me with just like a bunch of things that you think are cute. I would be genuinely taken aback if a child told me when they grow up they want to be a stranger. Like, what does that even mean? Can I say, just so we don't have to say it later, one of her other sons, one day she's pushing him on the swing and she said, look how high you go. And he goes, it's because I'm a great guy. <laughs> They're very confident. Some of these are very funny. Okay, so anyway, they're driving and her son just goes completely limp in the back seat. She turns around and she sees that he is just lying there. And obviously, I can't think of anything scarier that you could ever witness. And she says they're coming back from somewhere far away. They don't know where they are. Her phone's about to die. Luckily, they're able to get an ambulance just in time. But they fully think that they've lost him. They get him to the hospital and it turns out he's had a pretty major seizure. And after the seizure... They say he's good to go, and he, over the next couple weeks, just starts massively losing weight. And they go to the doctor, and the doctors are like, kids don't usually lose weight. And they keep throwing all these potential diseases, and no one can figure out what it is. And finally, they find out it's celiac disease. As we learn, we frantically Google, it's a genetic autoimmune disease in which eating gluten, even a particle of it, triggers an immune response in your small intestine, preventing it from absorbing nutrients. She sees the symptoms are poor bone density, seizures, motor skill delays, learning disabilities, intense fatigue, irritability, depression, failure to thrive. Every single thing that they'd been worried about was underneath the umbrella of this disease. I don't mean to make this about me, but it wasn't about me. It had nothing to do with my failure as a mother, and that's something I've had to reckon with. Why was I so hard on myself? Why are we mothers so hard on ourselves? There's no concrete answer, but with each passing day as his health improves, so too does my mental health and sense of self. He says things like he likes himself, and it occurs to me that I have never in my life said aloud or even thought, I like myself. It feels gross somehow, or arrogant or weak. But the part of me that resists self-love and self-compassion is the same part of me that assumes everything's my fault, which makes me sad. But taking a page from my son and accessing the confidence I feel in most other realms of my life, I can look back and feel proud of the fact that following my instincts got us here. Her chapter on Mother's Day, I think, is a really funny and interesting take on grief. It starts with a fight that she has with her husband because her mother-in-law, Texan's like, hey, I made reservations for everybody for Mother's Day brunch at the club. And she's like, David, why is your own mother making reservations for her own day? You have one job on this earth. And he's like, well, it's her club. I'm not a member, so I can't make reservations. She's like, yeah, I would let you make reservations. And he's like, hey, it seems like you're a bit stressed out about Mother's Day. So like, you don't have to come. And she goes, of course I'm not going. So for her and her loved ones, they've decided that her mom reappears as a yellow butterfly. That's an important note for this chapter. For Mother's Day, David books her a massage. And at the place where she gets a massage, there is a pool. And he gets her like a chair by the roses. And she says, I think that he is hoping that if I lounge by the flowers, a yellow butterfly will visit me. And he knows that that's important to me. She doesn't get a visit from a yellow butterfly. However, her brother gets a visit from a yellow butterfly, and he is a scientist. So he is not really into the whole, like, our mom is a butterfly thing. But because their dad has remarried and is in love again, he sees a butterfly with a little baby orange butterfly, and he calls Casey to be like, I think our mom met a red butterfly and had a baby orange butterfly. She doesn't love that. That's not really what she was looking for. So she calls her dad. But she says, I know it wasn't going to be helpful. He's never helpful in times like this, but I still needed somebody. And she calls him up and says, I'm upset about Mother's Day. It's just still such a hard day. I wish it wasn't. And I know a lot of time has passed, but it ends up being this day to reflect. And I'm still so sad she's gone. He cuts me off. Case, listen, this is the way of the world. You're a mom now, and it's time to just focus on that. And if you're looking for someone to feel sad about, I met a woman in church today who told me last weekend she and her two kids were hanging out. 
Just tossing the frisbee in the backyard when they fell in a sinkhole. That's bad. Imagine that. A sinkhole. (laughs) And that really made me laugh out loud. And it was a lot to process. Well, yeah, I guess that is definitely bad. And she tells her dad about the butterfly baby. And he says, I'm happy for her. Gotta run. And he was right. I am a mom now. And this day is also meant to celebrate me. Me, a mother. It's such a foreign concept. How could I have kids? I think I'm still a child. And she talks about all the ways that she wants to make sure she leaves her children something concrete to hold on to. And she's like, my mom gave me a lot. She wrote me notes, but she has these email addresses where she emails all the time to her kids. And should she die, her friends have very explicit instructions to print out all the emails and make a book for them. And she's just like, it just makes me so sad that my mom doesn't get to know my kids and my husband and my brother's wife and my brother's kids. And she says, but then again, maybe I'm right. My brother's wrong. And she does see it all. She sees Max and whatever my other son's name is playing with Fletcher's kids, Clementine and Teddy. I have to believe she can. So when all is said and done, I can finagle myself into a yellow butterfly or an orange butterfly. If my friends do their jobs, my kids will always know I'm just an email away. It was very sweet. Then she has a chapter that's kind of annoying. It's kind of her version of a listicle. People don't know how to act. And it's all the things she finds annoying in people, which is like, you know, calling someone and saying, I only have five minutes to chat. A preamble, taking a long time to get into your story. Everyone has their random things in society where you're like, I hate when people do this. I hate when someone writes a hashtag in their text messages, whatever it is. And she has little moments of this throughout the book where she feels like she can't finish a chapter without acknowledging privilege. Yeah, she's always like being like, and I know as a white woman, I have privileges that black and Latina women do not experience. And I know women of color have it 10 times worse. And I know to be able to hire a healer in itself is a privilege. It's tricky because on the one hand, it's annoying when people don't acknowledge what they do have. But there is something so 2020 about this. And this book did come out, I think, right at the beginning of the pandemic. She says, finally, I know the last dang thing anyone needs is a lecture from a white woman. So this final don't I'll issue to myself. But anyone who's reading this book who identifies as white will join me. Don't assume you aren't racist. You are. I am. Labeling myself racist has been shockingly hard to do. She says, we had to accept our complicity in the system and have empathy beyond our own experience. I agree with everything she is saying, but I don't find this necessary in this time or place. It just feels very obviously like sprinkled in at the end. There's something about saying it that feels even more trite than not saying. I guess just in such a lighthearted, riffy chapter to be like, and by the way, a note on the fact that we are all complicit in an oppressive system. Yeah. Don't double park and don't be racist. (laughs) Totally. Thanks, Casey. I mean, there's another part where she's like, I've never had anxiety, but it's gotten worse with this pandemic. And like, you know, especially with global warming, the systems of oppression at place, racism, sexism. And I'm like, very good. You've named all the big isms. And she's like, ever since half of this country voted for a hateful person, it's made me start to be anxious. And I'm like, oh, do you think it just started now? I don't think where she's coming from is a bad place, obviously. Like, I think that she's trying her best, but I also feel like in a lighthearted book of essays, which are for the most part just pretty surface level. Well, I wouldn't say surface level, but they're about her personal white experiences. Yes, 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 yes. They're about her personal experiences with grief. They're very much about her family and grief. Yeah. And so to throw those in, it very much feels like she just felt like she had to and not like she actually has anything to say. She just didn't want to accidentally leave without and get called out for it. And finally, the book ends with a revelation. A revelation that her love of sweets and food and the fact that she like goes crazy for candy and no matter what she does, no matter how many trainers, nutritionists and everyone she hires, she just can't stop eating so much junk food. She actually might need to go to the Eating Anonymous program that Barbara tried to send her to decades earlier. So she calls her dad because she's worried about this heart attack she had. And it's so rare. And she's worried about the heart attack her mom had. Yeah. And it's so rare for a woman to die of a heart attack like that. And she's like, do you have any insight into like what caused it? Was it her weight? Was it the food she was eating? And her dad goes, oh, yeah, I never told you, but she was addicted to Ritalin. And Casey's like, suddenly everything made sense. The mood swings, the psychosis, the way that she wouldn't eat and then she would binge eat and the way that she was so paranoid sometimes and then she remembers those times she would go into her own room for a week at a time and then come out and she was like, oh, she was detoxing. And it's like a real wake up call to Casey that she wants to be able to fix in herself the patterns that her mom couldn't free herself from. And she talks about after she had her first son, she went on diet pills and was planning on doing it again for the second son. And she's like, I know that the week I went off them was one of the worst weeks of my life. And I realized that I was detoxing and I think about like what my mom was going through. And I can't put my kids through that. And so she wants to try to be more conscious about it. And she's been going to overall Eaters Anonymous. I don't know if it's been helpful or not. As a fellow sugar addict, I'm like, did it help? Yeah. 
She says it does, but I'm like, what are the results? <laughs> yeah, read another book about it. But she says it with a lot of love for her mom. Yeah, she says it gave her a much greater understanding of what was going on and the questions to ask. And she really was grateful to her dad for not telling her earlier. He said, I didn't tell you right away because I didn't want to get in the way of your grief or cloud the way you thought about your mom. But it was helpful for her now. And she says, I'm tired of viewing myself as a failure. I don't view anyone who struggles with addiction or depression or anxiety or mental illness as a failure. And so I'm attempting to move forward with complete empathy and compassion for myself. The same empathy and compassion I extend to my mom. It's slow going for sure, but something has been lifted. My obsession with sugar will always be with me, but I've been able for today at least to put our friendship on hold. I have a beautiful life beyond my wildest dreams. I wanted to enjoy it. And I was actually in a place where I felt strong enough to tackle this. The thing that has plagued me since the day I was born. Thoughts? I really liked Casey. I really like Casey still. I think that this was a great book on loss and grief. Each topic that it touched, there was a real varying range of how well it handled those topics. I think grief, A+. I think being a fun, wacky lady, A-. Eating and food issues, C. I think that's very fair. I think you said you wish she had talked more about her friendships. She says her friendships mean a lot. And I do think that just wasn't what this book was about. Yeah. It's just something I'm interested in. It's not something that I'm like docking her for. No, but I also would love a book on her female friendships. She's best friends with June, Diane, Raphael. And together they wrote Bride Wars, which I think is a stellar film. Yeah. And I actually am interested in her career. I think the timeline of her career was a little bit all over the map in this book because it bounced around so much. So all we really get timeline wise is that she was living in New York writing sketches and made a sketch show with June Diane Raphael. And then at some point got SNL, got fired from SNL and was heartbroken, thought she failed and thought she blew her one shot. She gets happy endings. She eventually starts her podcast. Happy endings, we know, gets canceled. Overall, I feel like there's a lot of writing and a lot of interesting things she's done. And she's part of a real like cool comedy clique. It's something I'm like interested in knowing more about, but I don't think she's obligated to write about it. Anyway, thank you guys so much. We love you so much. Don't forget we are off next week, but back the week after, revitalized and ready to party. See you later. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. I adore you to the friggin' moon and back and then back again. Thank you, Darcy Khan. I am so happy to be conned into reading your name. Something hard for Ashley to read, baby. You fucking got me right in my gut. Thank you, Angela1436. You are an angel sent straight from Angela Heaven. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. We are gone next week, but the week after that, baby, we are back with a bang, I hope. See you then.